Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. Dr. Mark Westmoquette is an astrophysicist who became a student of Zen Buddhism and yoga. Now an author and meditation and yoga instructor, Mark has written a new book called Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People. In this podcast episode, we talk about this meaty topic of how to deal with difficult people who Mark calls troublesome Buddhas, from our boss and partner to world leaders and that person who takes your parking space. So Mark, you and I have spoken a couple of times before, and now you have a new book out called Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People. Can you tell me a little bit about the book before we start getting into the details? Yeah, not long ago, my Zen teacher, uh, Daizen, he said, um, if we can't take what we learn in our meditation practice and apply it to situations in life that we find really quite challenging and difficult, the sharp end, if you like, Mm -hmm. then at best, Zen is like an eccentric hobby. You know, we sit and do our meditation, but what does it do? This is really about taking what we learn from our meditation cushion and applying it to those situations in life that really challenge us. It's quite powerful what you said about a hobby. I've heard that a few times before, especially in this term of spiritual bypass. That's mm-hmm. become more mm-hmm. popular lately. And not doing spiritual bypass. Hopefully not. Become, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not. But the term has become popular to describe that dichotomy of feeling fantastic on the cushion and then getting up and, you know, getting in a fight with your wife or something like that. Exactly. Can, can you talk a little bit more about that dichotomy? Because I have a feeling we're not the only ones who've experienced that. I mean, I suspect that it's something that everyone encounters as they start practicing, especially if you have a kind of meditation practice which takes you to those kind of very calm, peaceful, Mm. very content kind of places, then it can be quite a, maybe a shock at some level to go out from that place of contentment and meet your neighbor who's uh, trying to park in your parking space or whatever like that. And then getting quite frustrated in a sense of like, I'm supposed to be practicing Buddhism here. How do I deal with this person? How do I relate to people I find difficult? So the phrase that we look at in the book is a troublesome Buddha. It's a fairly loose translation of a particular phrase in the Denkaroku, which is one of the, the transmission texts talking about how we can perceive people that we find difficult to essentially be some of our best teachers. The teachers that 
tell us about when we're feeling a bit blocked or stuck or when we're not really engaging with the situation, when we're doing, as you say, this kind of spiritual mm-hmm, bypassing. Mm-hmm. When I first became a Buddhist, I, I think sometimes a couple of people maybe tried to take advantage of me a little bit, kind of ask me for things, thinking like, if you're a Buddhist, you have to give <laughs> anything anybody wants to them. So I think some people were a little surprised and I could still say no <laughs> to things ah. or, or disagree with somebody. But what do you... As a Buddhist, what are you supposed to say when someone parks in your parking spot? What do you think is a good approach? Well, I mean, first of all, I think the idea of supposed to or should, as soon as a should comes up, it's like an alarm bell. You know, it tells us that we're trying to shoehorn something into we've theoretically learned or something like that. So there is no should and there is no correct way to approach someone that's stealing his parking space. So I start the book with an an example of you've gone to the supermarket and you're trying to park and you're maneuvering and someone nips into the the space just in front of you and you, you you know you're sort of raging at the steering wheels normally most of us would have this sort of like contraction right you get a sense of frustration or anger rising up and you're feeling affronted as a person this person has not recognized you for being a person that's the worst case, right? They're, they're not recognizing that you as a person have a just as equal right to be there in life as much as they do. So we get this real contraction. Immediately, we take up this stance of they're wrong and I'm right. I've got this parking space. Can't you see that I'm trying to maneuver into it? And this kind of person has nipped in or, or whatever the situation. So then it's our responsibility, our job, if you like, to start to inquire in that situation okay so is this the whole situation like this contraction around i'm right and they're wrong is that the whole truth it very well may be but there may be other ways of seeing things so then we apply our openness and our practice to that situation inquiring so what's going on in my body well i'm feeling tense i'm feeling shoulders are up i've got my fist ready to, I've got my car key ready to slide down the side of his car, all this stuff. But also maybe this person's in a rush. Maybe they're visiting someone in hospital. Maybe they're late for a job interview. Maybe they are just that kind of person which has spent an entire life thinking about themselves and just doesn't have that kind of view of other people. And so suddenly we get this broad and softening in our stance so that then we can entertain other possibilities. And out of that possibilities may very well be a kind of setting of a, of a boundary. This is not helpful. I don't know. It's not kind. Or maybe just stating, you know, I am very angry at what happened here. It's not you, but it's just, I feel angry. I feel effaced. I feel unrecognized, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, as a Buddhist, in no sense is it we need to be a puddle and be splashed upon and uh, taken advantage of. And that is absolutely not the point at all. But if we can choose and we can respond from that situation from a place of a little bit more insight and presence and understanding and that kind of softening of the view, then I think that something else can happen. Especially with a, a slightly more minor situation like this we can talk about more extreme ones in a little bit Mm. but with a more minor situation like this it's a pretty fertile ground to try the entire spectrum of the path because i remember going through this one of my earliest teachers venerable rabina corton is a wonderful australian nun and teacher and i remember someone asking her this question you know i'm a buddhist now what do i do when someone parks in front of my house she's keep doing this and venerable rabina said 
ask them to move. (laughs) (laughs) So there is common sense there. Of course, without getting angry, like you said, first to feel it in your body and to not let that emotion take over. Your mind um, becomes a nightmare for you when you start letting those emotions take over. I think that's the key. And I think people tend to call it like emotional regulation. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. Like technically, I suppose it's about not suppressing the emotions. Because I think like, like also as a Buddhist, you you can think, well, I'm not supposed to get angry. I've said one of the precepts is not to harbor anger. I don't get angry. But if we do that, then we're just as stuck as anywhere else. Allow the anger, notice the anger, notice all the rest of it, the grief, the Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, trying your very best to stay, as you say, like on top of it. So it's not like, it's not taking over our entire being. So we end up reacting impulsively from that. Yeah, I was talking to Laurie Anderson recently for an interview, and she said her teacher, Mingyur Rinpoche, gave her this amazing advice that you can try to feel sad without being sad. (laughs) So in this case, to feel angry without being angry, it's mindfulness is what it's saying, but it's such a powerful way to convey the message of mindfulness that you can allow this feeling to arise without letting it take over. That's right. So then I think there's a quote, he says, who can see the suffering is not themselves suffering. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it's the same. Oh, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really beautiful. Yeah. But then there's other, there's other levels, right? Like talked about this one level of just not letting the emotion take over. Um, And then you talk about having some perspective that that person's actions probably don't have anything to do with you. (laughs) They have their own agenda and their own life. And so realizing that like it's a bit silly getting angry when the other person's not really angry at you or even thinking about you. I think almost all the time when people that annoy you, I don't, although it's so easy to take it personally, probably 99% of the time they're not doing it maliciously and they're not doing it directed at you. You just happen to be the wrong person in the wrong place. We can know from ourselves, like just recently I can think of myself. So Mm -hmm. my my wife is just about to give birth for a couple of weeks off now. Mm -hmm. And I can feel this very low level sense of anxiousness about, you know, the impending change of our situation, arrival of the baby. And I can just feel it bubbling over like into Mm -hmm. my reactions with my wife and people Mm -hmm. around. And although I mean, I really do hope that I've not let it bubble over too much. But the fact that it does bubble over and I can experience it myself, then I can then see other people. Oh, you Mm -hmm. know, they're really annoyed at something that's happening in their life. And it's just bubbling over at me. You're talking about, I think, in the Buddhist perspective or Buddhist terms is cause and effect or karma, which is a dangerous word if you uh, don't believe in Buddhist karma. But the idea of mental cause and effect, right? In, In our tradition, we meditate on all the stages of the path every morning. And when I think about renouncing anger now in the morning, that's mostly what I think about is just realizing that everything has a cause, you know, that every person's action is this Mm. huge chain of cause and effect that Mm. (laughs) often has little or nothing to do with me. So anger is just misseeing that experience as being an affront (laughs) to yourself. In a sense, it has nothing to do with us on a sort of individual level, but on a sort of non-dual level, it's everything. That's the sort of beautiful thing about Mm -hmm. the view of a troublesome Buddha. Mm -hmm. We see this person who we're getting frustrated with and we, we get into that contracted state. And if we have a sufficient practice to bring to bear to this situation, then that person's suffering 
that they are playing out or acting out in that moment that you're experiencing. It's like we can embrace that as part of us, as if we're the whole universe. We're this one Buddha nature. Mm. And when we see this person as a Buddha expressing their Buddha nature or the universe expressing through them at that moment, mm. then it's like we can embrace it, all of that, yeah. and, and love it. To a lot of people, this term, troublesome Buddha, or the idea of seeing a person who's annoying you as a Buddha probably sounds pretty foreign. Could you unpack that a little bit and explain the term and why someone who you're annoyed by is a Buddha? Buddha is a teacher or an enlightened being. So how is the person annoying you <laughs> taking on that role? Yeah, yeah. So it's not the Buddha, uh, as yeah. you say. It's a yeah. Buddha, a Buddha. Um, as in a teacher. So you could see anyone who teaches you anything in this sense is a, is a Buddha. What do we learn? Let's, say, let's go back to this example of the person nipping into the parking spot just in front of you. So we learned that immediately we contract. So that's already telling us something about ourselves, like our immediate instinctual contraction and, and then that arising of frustration because we see things from our very own perspective. This is me. I want this parking spot. This is going to mess up my day. And just as much as that other person has perhaps not seen us as an individual, we learn about that way that we contract and we take up this hardened stance. So then we learn about how we can expand and soften. Perhaps I can be pretty calm and steady about everything, but when someone at work uses my coffee cup, I just explode. And then you inquire, why is this? It might just be that when you were 16 or something like that, your sister would always use your cup at in the kitchen or something like that and you got really annoyed over years and it's carried on and playing out and so you see these patterns and these habits and these tendencies that we've developed over all of these decades and so i think that in a sense that's really what the buddha is teaching yeah 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 i remember it's funny the situation with the parking spot is quite a good one if Mm. you drive because Mm. it does give you a chance to to practice a lot. I, I remember over time, another teacher telling me, you should be happy for that person. They're, they're so happy that they just got that parking spot. Yeah, and so, that's and so, then, and so that's more the compassion rejoicings is the topic. I think that fits under. But at first that was actually, you know, a little difficult. It was quite unnatural to start thinking that way. But over years, it became quite natural. And, and then when I'm with a friend or, or now with my daughter, I have a 10 year old daughter. It's a nice thing to teach people when you see someone taking your spot, you say, oh, Fantastic. Yeah. You know, this is what the Dalai Lama says, right? If you even if you want to be selfish, you should be intelligently selfish. And it turns out compassion is the way to be happy. Because mm-hmm. just from a selfish perspective, if you remain happy and you sit and laugh and rejoice at someone getting your parking spot, then your day's not ruined. In fact, mm-hmm. it's it's quite nice. Yeah. It can go completely the opposite. Yeah, that situation that you describe is the end result of many, many, many years of practice. I think when someone asks, is a troublesome Buddha, how, how can someone possibly teach me things? There's, there's a long way between that point and what you just describe about someone being happy at someone stealing your parking space. And that's the path of practice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't find it too difficult with parking. I still have trouble with my wife, but the parking <laughs> spots, like that one wasn't that yeah, hard to, yeah, to get. Yeah, yeah. It's when it gets more personal, it's much more, mm. it's much more. Well, difficult. I mean, I, I divide the book a little bit and yeah, yeah. take it in a, a sort of sliding spectrum. So we look at common or garden difficult people like yeah. uh, 
parking spot people commuters here in london i I don't have a car so typically it's all about when you're cycling along people doing Mm -hmm. silly things on the road and then packed trains and all that stuff and then we look at colleagues work colleagues work situation friends and family and then it's like siblings and then children and then the big one which is your parents but most people i'd say probably their biggest troublesome buddhas are their parents yeah yeah maybe we could take those take on some of those more difficult ones works it works a great situation to talk about because how do you deal with those challenges i mean there is often a lot of unfairness and and bias especially if you're a woman or if you're black and so on, there's a sort of ingrained bias in the situation already. So, you know, if you're looked over or if someone is promoted ahead of you or you're yelled at for something, maybe someone else doesn't get yelled yeah. at for. How do you strike that balance, actually? Where How do you apply this kind of humility and gentleness and then know when to apply a sense of justice and, and fighting for what's right? Great questions. There's no easy answer to that. Mm-hmm. I think in Zen, we talk a lot about working with the hara which mm-hmm. is a Japanese word, it means, it means your, your guts. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to the head mind, the intellectual mind, which gets very caught up in ideas mm-hmm. and concepts and these shoulds that we talked about. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this kind of like this whirlwind of stuff and dropping the attention down into a more kind of embodied, into mm-hmm. the belly, mm-hmm. into the gut, really deeply listening because I think sometimes we, we know what is the right response mm. but often we're too scared or we're too in that kind of habit the habit or the tendency and this is me I'm, I'm always quiet i don't want to make any kind of conflict i don't want to get on anyone's wrong side or you know other people just go straight into blaming and fieriness you know and it's all about anger and things like that so if we can come out of that tendency uh, that habit and just drop into the belly and maybe it needs us to spend quite a long time meditating and, and just contemplating and, and being with that. And then out of that might come some kind of response or action which needs to be mm. taken. Yeah, you know, this same teacher, Venerable Rabina, she's, she's very good with these situations. And I remember someone saying, what do I do when I get angry? And she said, that's like asking, what do you do when you get into a car crash? It's too late. <laughs> you need to learn how to drive. So, but, and that's the bridge, right? We were talking about that in the beginning, the bridge between the cushion and real life. And so that's the benefit, right? What you're saying is that time on the cushion prepares you and conditions you so that you can be aware of the feelings and let them pass through you without letting them take over your speech and your body and then make a, a wiser decision how to respond, right? So we might start when we engage with our Buddhist practice, just doing meditation, maybe 10 minutes or whatever it is. And then we build up a meditation and then we say, okay, I would like to apply that out. And then we do some very simple sweeping, cleaning kind of tasks that it's very meditative. And gradually we build it out into, I don't know, then we might uh, write an email, we might go shopping, we might do a a difficult recipe cooking in the kitchen Uh, and it's can we maintain that presence and awareness whilst doing something more complicated and it's like just like that with relationships we start with this very distraction free almost ideal situation of sitting on our cushion where we can just relate to ourselves and then how can i bring so that's the point of sangha right so we we go to our meditation group and we we have a a set of people that are engaged in the same kind of practice where we can try out 
can I be present with this person? What happens when I get annoyed with that person? Blah, blah, blah. I remember for myself very much so earlier on in my practice, one person in our group w- was really quite difficult and it was very frustrating. And I remember going to see Daizan, my teacher, and just saying, look, this person, she's a practicing Buddhist, yet she's doing this and this and this and can't you say something? <laughs> she's a bad Buddhist. <laughs> she's a bad Buddhist. Can't you do something about it? <laughs> yeah. And that's when he first described to me this kind of rock tumbler analogy. Uh-huh. And I think we spoke about it before. You know, oh, yeah, that. yeah. No, but share that. That's a great analogy. And yeah, so being in a relationship is just like being in a rock tumbler. And, you know, rock tumbler, you get these jagged, rough stones and you stick them in this tumbler and you turn the wheel and they bang around for a while. while and then eventually they come out polished and looking very beautiful. And so ideally, that's how it goes in Sangha. You get these people come in, they're all a bit rough, and then they bang off each other. And they, But they bang off each other in such a way that's awake and present, and they're really dealing with stuff. And then hopefully you, you end up coming out a polished jewel. Well, one day that might happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they say, if you read relationship books, they often say that we subconsciously choose a partner who deliberately pushes our worst buttons because they're the areas we need to grow. Like in your language, that's our sharp edge, Mm. right? Someone who's deliberately bouncing against our sharp edges to help us smooth them down. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I'd be interested to know how, as I've also met people who would have seemed like to me deliberately chosen a partner who doesn't bang off their edges. Ah, yeah. And you can go for a long time, you're basically not rubbing each other at all. And then suddenly one of the spikes comes into view and it can cause all sorts of suffering. Yeah. Maybe people are more polite in the UK. I wonder if you can talk more about relationships because it's complicated, right? With your partner, because on the one hand, it's the person you love most and you both chose each other out of everyone in the world to, to spend your whole life together and made vows to. And, and I think for most of us, it's also maybe our most annoying <laughs> relationship Mm. sometimes too. Can you talk about that when in our intimate relationships, how to see the difficulties as a way to practice? Yeah. Daizen, when we were coming up with this book, I was talking a little bit about the the subject. He'd spent 20 years living in a monastery and um, he talks about how the monastery was a situation where you live very on top of each other. You have a very small space and it's almost designed so that you get in each other's on each other's wick the whole time, giving it lots of material to deal with. And so he said to me on many occasions, Mark, living in a marriage is like a two-person monastery. You've chosen to put your lot in with each other and live together on a very intimate and close basis. And necessarily, you will start to rub against each other. And it's like part of that commitment, living with each other, is the commitment to look at this stuff and to learn and deal with the difficulty. So it's a huge source of gratitude for me, and it has been over the years. I, I, I remember there is one one example, right? So not long after Joe and I got together, before we were married, we were living together, and she'd gone off for a weekend with her friends. And then she got back from the weekend, and we were talking about, oh, how was it, what you've been up to? And she described something that she did over that weekend, which was very much outside of my my view of the kind of things that she might do and I remember getting extremely upset and then spending a bit of time we sort of went away from each other and I I was just looking at what was going on and I'd realized what eventually what I'd realized that I had basically fixed her into a thing 
I had thingified into a concept of what I thought that she was. I'd made her into a fantasy, basically, of, of the kind of person and the kind of things that she might do and the kind of things she might think. So she did something which was outside of that, and it upset me terribly. But in the end, it was an in, it was such an important lesson in how we do this all the time with the people that we love. We like to think that we know them. That's them, and we've got this very definite idea about them. Yeah, I I think that's extraordinary, really, to realize. And you can be. I've been with my wife, married for I don't know fourteen years. I've known her for twenty, but in a way, still don't really know her. A lot of it is because of my own projection because I project just ideas about who I want her to be, but also because of change. There's a beautiful phrase, every moment is new, that I often think about when I get stuck in relationship problems to think like, especially if I say like, she always did it to mm-hmm. myself. And I'm like, wait, every moment is new. Every moment is really new. And it's and then we project onto this. But I, um, I recently had this epiphany to sit down and ask my wife a bunch of kind of obvious yet profound questions. Like the first one was, what matters to you? <laughs> like, um, yeah. What matters to you in life, in our relationship? And I was so surprised by the answer. I actually was very surprised. And I made a list of this. It was like five or six pretty foundational questions mm-hmm. like this. And it was really profound. It took a couple hours to go through them all. But I couldn't believe actually how much yeah. I learned about her. And it was actually surprising and humbling like wow they were all about what's really important to you like what's what do you want what do you don't want Mm. in life totally open-ended and it was really different than quite what i thought about and definitely from what i projected yeah (laughs) that's right because we we think oh we don't need to ask that question yeah i kind of know but but do you that's right yeah and then even if you did know even if i have just asked those questions if i ask them in a year they might be different too yeah, yeah. It, it's quite humbling being in a relationship. I read about a Buddhist nun, a celibate Buddhist nun who quit and became a wife and then a mother. And she said, you know, I really understand. This is a really hard practice. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> being yeah, in a relationship, yeah. being a mother, this is the most difficult practice I've ever done. And, and that's the choice. We're, we're lay yeah. practicing Buddhists. And yeah. um, Although, I mean, I understand the situation in a monastery may be set up to see, be a little bit more ideal. We choose to do it in life, in, in uh, householder life with householder problems. Yeah. Okay, so here's a really difficult question, because I think this is where even longtime Buddhists bump up against, you know, hardened ideas. Is um, what if you think of someone like Vladimir Putin? <laughs> as your troublesome Buddha. How do you rectify that? This goes beyond parking spots and marital squabbles. This is bombing and murder yeah. and oppression and, and so on. What are the ways to apply these ideas in a situation like that? So I wanted to add to the book, yeah. troublesome politicians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Because I think for a lot of people, I think this is really tricky. But everyone I spoke to, I was asking, how do you deal with difficult politicians? And almost everyone said, I just turned the news off. I, I don't watch it anymore. And you think, well, that's, that's not quite what I hoped for. But <laughs> Basically, I have absolutely no clue who Vladimir Putin is. I have a very, very distorted, very narrow view of this person. And as much as you just say, we don't know who our wife is, and let alone someone who's across the other side of the world, I can only sit and try to see him as a Buddha, as this person who has something to teach me about where do I get stuck? Where do I hold on? 
Where am I not accepting? And also, he is someone, a product of his background and society and all that kind of stuff. And although I have absolutely not a clue how to understand what is going on, and I don't really know how to start with that, you know, I can't really go to anyone and ask, how, how do I understand Putin? So all I can do is just sort of, okay, see that sort of karma. He, he's a human, you know, he's, he's like my left hand to my right hand as much as anyone else on this planet. Hard. So to see it through the lens of cause and effect, of course, there is some giant stream of cause and effect in his family and his country and his culture and so on that's led him to think and behave in that way. Is, is it, that what you're saying? It, and it makes me feel very, very sad. Yeah. I feel a deep sadness for someone who is in that situation. And I suspect that deep, I mean, I can presume perhaps that deep down he, he is very deeply suffering. That's certainly what they say. And even from our own small experience of getting very slightly angry, it feels awful. So mm. I would assume that he's miserable, like many kind of angry, mm. powerful people, which is certain one, certainly one dimension. You could try and have compassion, yet he's so powerful and harming so many other people. So, mm. Yeah, I'd certainly put him in the sort of troublesome ogre category, up the very far end of the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I know in our tradition, you do make certain aspirations. So you put that person actually in a special place in your practice every morning and wish for their heart to heal and for them to become gentle and not out of any necessarily superstition. I wouldn't say I believe that has some magical power to transform Vladimir Putin's mind, but it does have an effect on our own mind. I remember a few times I've seen the Dalai Lama and people ask him, what do we do to end war? Mm. And he always said the same thing, uh, gave the same answer. And he said, resolve all the arguments in your own life. Yeah. He said, make up with all the people you have problems with. And that sounds a little confusing, I think. But if you look at cause and effect, it does make sense. Everything's made out of individual people making decisions. So if you really did create a sphere of resolved conflict around you, it would continue to ripple out. It wouldn't end <laughs> with, with well, that's your, right. your and there, there are a number of, it just reminds me of another Zen Cohen's about this. One of them is, how many stars are there in the sky? And you think there's so many stars, how can I possibly count them all? But, but you just start. And yeah. that's the point. You start from where you are here, what we can influence in ourselves. <laughs> that's a good one for you, right? Because you're an astrophysicist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you that actually one. know how many stars there are in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> you can cheat. <laughs> you can cheat. Yeah, yeah. No, but that's nice. It's just to start. It's a good lesson. It Somehow, I think a lot of people get discouraged thinking their influence is too small, but it's extraordinary if you can make even one small positive change in life and they do ripple out. You've talked to a lot of people, both for the book and then for the podcast. Are there any stories that stand out for you of successful or maybe entertaining uh, ways in which we can learn from? Mm, yeah, m many, uh, many. Back to the sort of driving sort of situation, there was a, a friend, I don't know if you have this similar situation in the US, but you have, sometimes you have three lanes on the road, which then merge into two. Mm -hmm. and that yeah, happens here yeah it's in the merging process there's an area of road which is hatched before it actually disappears right so driving along he'd get really annoyed people would race up the outside lane to try and nip in and make the maximum use of all the hatched area before it disappeared 
And he'd say, why can't you just wait your turn? What do you have to in such a rush for? So he'd get really angry at this. Then he watched a program on TV about traffic flow and optimal traffic flow and things. And it turned out that making maximum use of the road was using the road to its most efficient. So you use all three lanes, even the hatched area, until there was no space. You'd actually maximise traffic flow on the road. And he said, just by learning that, the next time I went on the road and someone drove up the outside into the hatched area, he's like, ah, my attitude is completely different. He'd be like, oh, okay, great. You're actually doing it all a a help by maximising the use of the road. And it's that is the kind of little tiny piece of wisdom which can flip everything right around and you suddenly see your attitude changes completely and you can be thankful and gratitude arises. Yeah, this is one of the things about Buddhism, right, is that that strong position that the way you think about something is very powerful. If you have some beneficial interpretation that <laughs> that helps everybody, better to be biased towards beneficial interpretation mm-hmm. and beneficial Op- action. Better than... to be optimistic, that's right. Yeah, because it happens all the time. And another perspective, the Venerable Sangye Kadro, who's another one of my, t- an incredible nun, who's a, also a Buddhist teacher. When I asked her about problems with other people like that. She said, you know, other people are mostly a mirror, which I know you talk about a little bit too. You know, that when you have problems with someone, sometimes the best thing to do is actually look at how it reflects on, you know, your own behavior. (laughs) Can you talk about that a little bit, the the kind of mirror? Yeah, there's an example that I've written about in the book about a lady who some years ago in her workplace found another lady very irritating and frustrating and she inquired and inquired after some long time, I think, about why was she was feeling so irritated until she met with, I think she met with her mother or something like that. And then the next day realized, straight away realized, oh my gosh, I'm getting so irritating because this person is reflecting a trait of my mother that I would get really annoyed with. And that trait, I'm, I'm now aware that trait is arising in me. I really disliked it in my mother. And I really wish that I didn't have it, but I now I'm seeing it's coming out. And this person is just bringing it out. I think that we can be so resistant to seeing that because we don't want to see it. But another person can just lift it out of us or just, you know, it's not their fault, but it's just arising in this situation. And so, yeah. seeing that wonderful mirror. Mm. Yeah. And that's looking at cause and effect from your own perspective, seeing how your actions are conditioned sometimes unconsciously by what came before. More than sometimes. The other aspect of mirroring is um, to deliberately mirror others. It turns out, like they say, our consciousness is like a mirror, like in in our, I think in a lot of the Buddhist traditions that at its fundamental level, the consciousness is just like a holographic mirror that just Mm. reflects what appears to it. But there's a technique called nonviolent communication, where that's almost all you do is just someone says something and you just say it right back to them. Mm-hmm. What I hear you saying is da da da. And it's amazing how much people like that, <laughs> just to hear back whatever they said to you. And even if it's quite angry, I've found, because I got into some work conflicts, I worked at a very high powered place for a little while. There were very, some huge egos and conflicts and actually talked to this. I had a guy who was a kind of nonviolent communication coach who would help me through some of these issues. And that's what he said. He said, you know, when someone's really angry, just start reflecting back at them like, oh, it looks like you're really angry. Oh, mm. you're saying that it's because I did it took your head count or whatever, something like that. Because you're not responding from a place of you're making me. You're just responding from a place of this is my truth. 
but it's also recognizing them and where they are at. Yeah, yeah. Even without saying anything about yourself, it's just, oh, it looks like you're really, it, it just really shocked me how well that worked when I started doing it. Like someone would come in like fuming and I say, okay, I, I can see you're really angry right now. And they're like, you bet I'm angry. But mm -hmm. even then you see it actually yeah. de-escalating. Yeah. Have you seen that in any of your your study and examples am, on the Buddhist uh, perspective. Uh, there's, a, there's a similar example, a, a slightly different situation. Let's, let's say you're the boss and you're coming in really angry and you've got to give a presentation. You're just so stressed out and you look around the room and you see everyone bored and disconnected and things like that. And all you do is just ratchet up. Now, if you have someone in the audience who is able to be present and just sit there in that kind of openness and meet you eye to eye with a sense of not getting drawn into that emotion, then that can help. We can regulate with the use of another person, not just by ourselves. So you might take yourself out and sort of calm down, but also when we meet someone who is grounded and open, that then it, it can, as you see, escalate together. Yeah, that's, that's very that nice, mirroring, isn't it? Yeah, especially with a smile or a joke or something like Particularly that. Particularly with a open facial expression yeah. and that, that kind of sing-songy voice. If someone needs to say something, don't say it monotone. Say it with a little bit up and down, and that's really yeah. calming. Yeah. Where do you think the evolutionary perspective comes in? You know, evolutionary psychology is very popular now, and it does seem to make logical sense, but it can be a little discouraging because I think one thing they say is mammals never forget being hurt <laughs> you know that's right so there's this amazing book called the body keeps the score and all that kind of work on somatic experiencing and trauma release and things like that yeah absolutely right the body is very 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 good at remembering things when the mind and the memory maybe has forgotten it completely so how do we release those things how do, knowing we're mammals knowing we're so prone to trauma from someone cutting in line bringing up a, a live or die response. You've mentioned a lot of good techniques, but what do you do in the realizing that we are overreactive mammals? Yeah, I, I think that realizing that our meditation practice is not something we just do with our mind. It is an embodied practice that it happens with our whole being, mind, body, and all levels. Whether we're sitting there counting our breath and a memory arises, or we're sitting there counting a breath and a sensation arises, then we're practicing the same art of allowing it to be not trying to manipulate it, not trying to change or push it away in any sense. The memories can unwind, but also the body has a chance, an opportunity to let things go and release a little bit. And personally, I do, I practice a lot of yoga as well. I found that over the years to be deeply helpful for really emphasizing that embodiment, physical element, mm. release and uh, unwinding. Yeah, that's very important to see, to accept, not just accept that we're mammals, but accept that we're embodied beings mm. and let feelings settle within the body and accept mm. them and let them pass. Mm. And definitely remember being on retreats where mm. there's been like a sharp pain somewhere in the middle of my back and you're going on for days. Mm. And, oh, what is that? What is that? You know, you just let it, let it be, let it be. And then after a few days, it just poof. And up comes a memory of when I was, I don't know, six, teenager and something happened. It just sort of, and then it's dissolved. Wow. So the memories have this physical effect. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't talked about yet on this topic of dealing with difficult people? 
We all have those common or garden people that we find difficult. We've spoken a lot about that. But I think many people, especially people who are drawn into practicing Buddhism in different ways, will most likely have those people in their history who are up at the top end of the spectrum, what I call the troublesome ogres, the people that have caused deep pain and caused perhaps some kind of abuse or trauma at some level. And uh, I think it's really important to acknowledge that they also can be brought into this troublesome Buddha sphere. It can be the work of years and years, and perhaps, like always, ongoing, really, to allow these people to be seen as Buddhas as much as anyone else. And uh, I know for myself, I was sexually abused when I was about five or six. And um, it's taken a lot of lot of time, you know, to come to terms with my father and what he did. And I think part of my healing was to spend a good number of years where I basically just cut off all, all communication. I didn't speak to him because I felt being in communication being in relationship with him actually was just clouding everything. It was re-traumatizing, re-confusing everything. So I actually decided personally for me to, to separate completely, to look at what was going on in me, to deal with some of it. And now, more recently, I've felt more okay to get back in touch. <laughs> I got to the point a few years back where I felt I was ready to forgive him. We met and I told him, I've been really working with this and I... I actually, I forgive you for what you did. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what you made of it. I, I don't know whether he took it on board. I don't know whether he was in a position to hear what I'm saying. But I felt it was a, it's a big watershed moment in my own practice. Mm. Do you think he was aware of what he did? I think actually he has told himself a version of the events, which he has, he, he is a, he has, come to terms with himself, which is not the version of events that I remember. And it has become, I think, his truth. And it's become as much of his truth as my my truth. It gets you to the point where you realise, actually, what is truth? From like 35 years ago, who knows what truth is, you know? And um, all I can know is what I feel and what has come as a result of that. And he knows what he feels and what comes as a result of that. We just come to meet at this place where I just, I feel able to see his history, his background, his confusion, the result of his background coming in. And, and we're all this deeply interconnected, manifesting version of the universe right now together. Yeah, yeah. Without letting go of the compassion for yourself as a helpless child who... Mm suffered extensively it's very difficult to balance all of that i would imagine yeah exactly so i think forgiving someone yeah. in my book absolutely forgiving someone is not saying that what they've done is right <laughs> in no sense forgiveness it's like the precept of not harboring anger if we harbor it if we hold on and we're not able to let go then it, all it is doing is just jamming us up and it may take a lot of time to really truly let go but when we can do that, then the pipe goes open. It allows the energy to flow much more. No, that's amazing. My friend was really helped by the Dalai Lama. Mm. She got to meet with the Dalai Lama a long time ago, about 20 years ago. And she had this, the same thing, a childhood sexual mm. abuse with her parent. And it was surprising what the Dalai Lama said to her. because was actually quite strong in a way. He said, have you been angry uh, long enough? It wasn't rude in any way. It was actually like a legitimate question. It just... 
have you been angry for long enough? And it, it had this extraordinary transforming effect on her to realize, oh, yeah, <laughs> I think I have actually. And I can now move on to something obviously not completely healed or forgiving or anything, but to move on to a next stage mm, mm. in processing those feelings. I, I think for, for me, I, I think probably the other way around, I just couldn't feel any anger. Yeah. My way of reacting to all of that was to shut off and hold everyone at mm-hmm, arm's distance mm-hmm. and, and really suppress all that stuff. And it worked well for me in being able to get on in life. But in the end, you know, it all catches up on you. And I remember being in psychotherapy and the therapist saying, are you angry about that? No, no, I'm not angry. No. (laughs) And it took a long time to realize. And then it just so much. Once you touch it, wow, there's a lot of anger here. And I think that's right. So it can be, have you been angry long enough yet? Or it can be the other way around. Have you been angry for long enough? Is yeah. it done? Is it done? Yeah. Or is it finally time to get a little, what, let that anger. What a um, lovely comment. What an amazing, wow. insightful comment. Well, it's very kind of you to share that. And it's, I think it's very inspiring for people to hear stories like that because it puts smaller conflicts in perspective. Obviously, if someone like you, or my friend, can deal with something so severe of a parent breaking their trust like that, then we can probably deal with the angry boss and the uh-huh. squabble with our wife and the parking spot. Picker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you've yeah. agreed to, you've kindly agreed to lead a meditation for us that will air in the next episode. Could you talk a little bit about what that meditation is? And then we'll just air it uninterrupted in the next episode. I thought we, maybe we could look at a particular koan. We're going to be looking at nonsense, cutting the cat in two. <laughs> it's quite a famous Zen koan, and it's really all about conflict. So we'll, we'll settle into our body, and then I'll introduce the koan and just see how that might settle into our body, thinking about mm. it. Wonderful. I think I'm familiar with that one. It's similar to a, an old fairy tale. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment and sharing so much about this extremely practical topic of dealing with difficult people and also your openness and generosity of sharing such a personal story. So oh, I really course, appreciate it. And I think our listeners will really appreciate it. And thank you for writing this great book too. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me in my conversation with Dr. Mark Westmoquette. If you'd like to learn more, there's a link to buy Mark's latest book, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People, and his other wonderful books, including Mindful Thoughts for Stargazers, that draws on his background as an astrophysicist. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider making a donation to our podcast. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization supported entirely by donations that keep all our content free and ad-free. To support us now, visit our website at skepticspath.org. We accept cash, credit, Bitcoin, and other cryptocurrencies, and your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. If you'd like to deepen this conversation, please join our newsletter or our social media accounts on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where we can be found under the name Skeptic's Path. Thanks to Tara Anderson for producing and editing this episode, Christian Parry for audio mastering, Jason Waterman for marketing direction, and Isabella Acebal for digital production and social media. We wish you a wonderful day. Thank mm-hmm. you.